If you have your Bible with you this morning, could you turn please to Matthew chapter 6. If you're here for the first time, a very warm welcome to you. I know you will have enjoyed the service thus far. It is so good to see the church together on Sunday morning and see so many of us gradually coming back. And we will keep all of our COVID protocols in place for the next few weeks until such times as CDC tell us otherwise. But it is a delight to have you with us this morning. If you're watching from home this morning, a very warm welcome to those of you throughout the United States and those watching from overseas. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're conscious you're in a different time zone. We appreciate your willingness to be here. Over the last few weeks, as most of you know, we have been steadily working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're coming to that section that focuses on prayer. And so we're beginning Matthew chapter 6. Verse 5, Jesus is speaking and he says these words. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door. And pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for their Father knows what you need before you ask. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Choir, you will be in full agreement with my next phrase, but I suspect the congregation will not. And the choir share with me a very cultured, insightful, uh, refined sense of humor. And you, of course, usually groan when I try to say something funny or uh, remarkably insightful. But because I have this strange, if not quirky, sense of humor, people will send me images, events, stories they think are funny. And this week, this is the one I received. Now, you're going to have to look at it closely to understand why it's funny. So, here it comes. Choir, thank you. I knew you would get it. I knew you would. Thank you. Grady, make sure you're recording this and broadcasting this part, please. Now, why is that funny? It's funny because you're seeing two things you don't always put together. And they're put together in a way that is humorous. And this morning, as we make our way through... Sermon on the Mount, we're going to take the words of the scripture and then put them together and apply them to our lives. And there are times in our lives when God begins to speak into our lives and challenge us. There are other times when he overwhelms us and refreshes us and strengthens us. 
But this morning I trust that will be your experience. As we begin to take God's word, and we do this often on Sunday morning, and seek to apply them to our lives in ways that are designed to make a difference. Because we are not convinced as Christian people that we should simply turn up for worship on Sunday morning and then go about our business in the course of the week. In fact, we're convinced of the opposite. We believe that Sunday morning is a time of encouragement, equipping and enabling by the Spirit of God. When God's Word speaks into our lives and equips us to live out our faith in the course of the week. And the passage, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, is one of those great sections of Scripture that is compelling, challenging, and absolutely energizing. I do trust that will be your experience this morning. But we also know that when it comes to the application of Scripture, if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, you might see a passage of Scripture and especially the application of that passage a little differently if you're 45 with three teenage children. Or perhaps you are someone who is running a very demanding business. And you're saying, Richard, how does it apply to my situation? And of course, each of us, and that's the wonder of the Scripture, depend on the Holy Spirit to take a passage of Scripture and speak into our lives. Now, when we begin to think of applying the Scriptures and the various ages and stages in our congregation, if you are 18 to 30, it will be slightly different how you apply it than another age group. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I won't go over it in great detail this morning, But let me remind you what psychologists, sociologists, those who study semiotics tell us about the 18 to 30 year olds. They tell us this, that the characteristics of the group known as millennials, 18 to 30s, for them Wi-Fi is an entitlement. Access to technology means the world is instant, open and limitless. Life is defined by being connected to the ubiquitous convenience of a digital playground. 92% do not go online, they quite simply live online. They're multi-ethnic in their friendships, global in their outlook, sexually fluid in relationships, believe themselves to be mature and in control. They intend to change the world. Entrepreneurship is in their blood, and I see it again and again, and it's to be applauded and encouraged. They seek education and knowledge. They use social media as a tool, not simply to keep in touch, but much more than that. They believe that culturally, cultural and social instability is normal. They multitask across five screens. My only comment there is, if it was only five screens, most of us would feel a little better. Attention span is getting shorter, we're being told. Communicate with symbols and images. Hyper aware of humanity's impact on the planet. Savvy and well informed when it comes to ads. More apt to be influenced by friends than commercials. 78% believe in God. Less than 50% attend a weekly religious service. 21.3% claim to be agnostic. 
Yet, they long for credibility and authenticity. They seek relational connectedness and intergenerational engagement. Think with their feelings. Listen with their eyes. Because they want to know, is this real? Whatever they interact with, whoever they engage with, is it real? Will it make a difference? That's the question uppermost in their minds. They long to be part of the solution to perceived problems, long for a faith which is high in invitation and high in challenge, and they are thirsty for transcendence. Thirsty for transcendence. And if that describes the 18s to 30s in your life, this morning we're going to make the point that it's not only 18 to 30s who seek the transcendent, relational connectedness. I think people of every age and stage, of every generation, whatever age you are at, That sense of seeking the transcendent is very real. That sense of relational connectedness is very real. When I interview 18s to 30s who are thinking about going into the ministry and we have a long conversation, one of the things that will come toward the top of that list is they will tell me there is a need for a mentor, someone to help them develop, someone to help them grow, someone who's going to be there with them. And you see that thirst for knowledge and education. You see the longing for relational connectedness. And it's very real. Mentor-mentee relationships are very common these days. And that sense of relational connectedness, we are going to see all over this passage this morning. And when Jesus is asked about prayer, we're going to look at how he responds. This version of The Lord's Prayer is probably the most popular version. Luke also records a version of it in Luke chapter 6. And Luke tells it in a slightly different manner. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke's gospel, and one of the disciples say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And the question is, why do they say, Lord, teach us, how to pray. Had they never prayed before? Had they never gone to the temple or the synagogue, heard others pray? Did parents and grandparents never pray around the table at feasts and festivals before a meal? Teach us how to pray. Here's my question before we go any further this morning. If you could have... 30 minutes to sit down with Jesus. Absolutely relax. Glass of tea, cup of coffee, tuck your legs under and just sit there and have a conversation with him. What would be the focal point of that conversation this morning? What would you ask for? Would you ask to be 
better parent, better football coach, better engineer, better lawyer, better parent, better grandparent, better person. Would you ask for wisdom and guidance in your place of work? What would you ask for this morning? Why did the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray? Of all the things to ask for, teach us how to pray. I suspect, and please forgive me for this, I might say, Lord, teach me how to walk on water. I would quite like to do that. Teach me how to change water into wine. Teach me how to cure the blind, the disabled. Give me wisdom. What would you ask for? And I think the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray because they saw a connection between his lifestyle choices and his prayer. They saw a connection between how he interacted with others and his prayer. They saw a connection between the impact his life had on others and his prayer life. They saw the connection. And when you see the connection in the life of Jesus, I think that's exactly why they said, we want to be able to pray like you, because we want to be like you. We want to grow in our faith. We want to develop in our relational connectedness with our Heavenly Father. We are thirsting for the transcendence. We want to be in His presence. We want to enjoy Him. We want to be blessed by Him. We are longing passionately, intimately to know Him better. That's what's going on there. And notice how Jesus responds. Now, He doesn't always do this, but in this passage... He begins by teaching them how not to pray. Do you see that? And when you pray, do not be like hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Then jump down to verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. Why does he begin, do not pray this way, rather than this is how to pray? I suspect Jesus is saying to them this, prayers that are formulaic, Prayers that come by rote. Prayers that are empty in content, shallow, insincere, lacking honesty, accountability, transparency. You're going through the motions. Don't do that. Resist that. In fact, the word used for hypocrisy 
in this passage was a word used for actors in the theater in the first century. They were pretending to be someone they were not. And so Jesus is saying, this is not about pretense. This is not about show. This is not about constantly repeating yourself. And I think he's taking them to a level that is not only compelling, but deeply challenging. Because I would have to tell you there are moments in my life when I pray where I'm not entirely honest with my Heavenly Father. There are deep and hidden recesses, thoughts and behavior patterns in my life that I don't want Him to see, that I want to guard, that I want to keep in secret in those dark corners. Ever been there? Ever wanted to hide from him? Ever been so challenged that you instinctively pull away because you know the sin in your life is not something you want him to see or have it exposed to him? That's what's going on here. Empty prayers, devoid of content and veracity. Prayers that lack integrity are little more than a performance, hence the word hypocrisy. And he's saying avoid that. I'm happy to engage with people. I delight to engage with people who will open up their heart, their mind, their soul, the whole person. And here's the amazing thing in all of this. And please hear this. He already knows every single thing about you. There's nothing you can hide. Nothing he doesn't know. No thought process, no motivation, no desire that he's unaware of. And what he's saying is, I need you to come to that place of truth. That place of integrity. That place where you don't hold back. And repetition and performance is not what's going on here. Transparency, integrity. That's what I'm after. And notice what he says. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now let me pause right there. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Hold that thought. Now, in your imagination, come with me please to Washington DC, Philadelphia, London, Moscow, Paris, Rome, a major city, any city across the world. And if you're there with your family, let's say there's three or five of you, you're there, husband, wife, children, or perhaps you're in a small group of a handful of folks. You're standing at a street corner, New York, and you have in front of you a guidebook or one of these fold-out maps. 
And folks are passing by and you're thinking, I'm at the corner of 5th and what's the other one? What's down that way? And where is the Empire State Building? And you can't quite see it. And you're thinking, okay, I'm a little lost. If someone's passing, it's entirely appropriate to stop them and say, excuse me, I'm looking for the Empire State Building. Can you point me in that direction? And they'll say, let's have a look at your map. Yep, you're right here. You go three blocks down, two to your left, and it's on your right. Remember, three down, two to the left, and it's on your right. You'll not miss it. Well, in actual fact, if you've stood at the bottom of the Empire State Building, it's easy to miss. Because when you look up, there's office blocks everywhere. It's not, it's not a landmark till you're further out or you're on top of it. And so it's easy to get lost. Now, when you have that conversation, that conversation is entirely appropriate. And folks in New York or D.C., Philadelphia, wherever, will be glad to help for the most part. Now, if you move the conversation to another level, and if you say, ah, do you know what, there's one other thing you could help me with. Do you know, this morning I knocked my phone into the toilet. It's ruined. I can't use it. It's my only sense of communication. Can I please take yours? No. They're not going to be as amenable to that as they were. Can you show me the Empire State Building? Because conversations are predicated on relationship. If, on the other hand, you and the other family you're with on tour in New York, you come out of the hotel and you're standing there and you say, I knocked my phone into the toilet this morning. It's a disaster. I can't use it. I'm waiting on my daughter to phone me. Can I borrow your phone for a second? They'll say, sure, just give me back when you're ready. There's a relationship there. And what Jesus is saying here is this, that prayer is predicated on a relationship. Our Father, that's the point. You have all sorts of relationships, family relationships, business relationships, acquaintances. In a business relationship, the relationship is predicated on goods and services. It's predicated on can you perform? Can you do what you promised to do? And will you deliver at the date and time you said you would? That's the basis of the relationship. It's about performance. What you can do. In your relationship with your heavenly father... It is not based upon performance. It's not based on what you can do. Please hear this. It's based on a relationship. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Settle it in your heart and mind and soul. He thinks you are absolutely Utterly spectacular. That's how he looks at you. He's deeply in love with you. Now there are some Sundays where we deal with controversial, difficult issues. Sometimes they are dark when we look at sin in the world and sin in our own lives. But there's a balance in Scripture, and here we see our Heavenly Father loves us. The passage doesn't begin as you look at it. This then is how you should pray. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It begins, our Father. It doesn't begin, our friend. It doesn't begin, divine creator. It begins, our Father. Do you see it? Our Father. Not friend, father. Which of you is a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent when the three-year-olds and four-year-olds in your families come to you and you pick them up and put them on your knee? What a blessed experience that is just to have them talk, find out about their day. Your relationship isn't based on whether they're performing or not. It's a family relationship. You're loved. Likewise with God. He adopts you into his family. He doesn't kick you out on the basis of performance. He doesn't kick you out if you're not contributing. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Earlier this morning, in fact, I spoke to a dad who is just applied for adoption. And I said to him, do you have any idea when? He said, no, it could be next week. It could be 18 months. We just don't know. And I told him how excited and thrilled I was for them. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in their lives. How spectacular. And when they go and interact with these wee ones, they will not do so on the basis of can they perform. They will not do so on the basis of are they behaving. They're never going to put them outside the door at Thanksgiving, lock the door just because they misbehaved, and phone up the authorities and say, please pick them up. It's never going to happen because they are loved at a level that is profound and eternal. That's what happens. The Apostle John, who wrote his epistles, and they're tucked in at the end of the New Testament, He was somewhere between 89 and 91 New Testament scholars tell us. And in John, 1 John chapter 3, that means 1 John means his first epistle. And if you're taking notes this morning, put it in the margin right beside the passage we're looking at, 1 John 3, 1. And here is the old apostle looking back on his life. And he writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are now pause a second and look at this it doesn't say see what love the father has given us it says see what great love the word used there for great means astonishing you could translate it incredulity, overwhelming, absolutely unbelievable. Please hear me as you go into a new week and a new month. Understand this. Grasp the immensity and the intensity of it. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Settle it. He's never walking away from you. He will never abandon you. He will never 
never give you up to the emotion of the moment. Because his love is not based on performance or what you can do. He loves you. See what great love, astonishing, the Father has given us, the Father offers us, the Father makes available. No, He has lavished upon us. No wonder it's astonishing. I would have to tell you there are moments when I am in prayer. And I have wrestled through my sins. And I have struggled to articulate all that I'm wrestling with. And it's usually my sin. And then I will read a portion of Scripture and His love will wash over me again. And I become tearful and moved profoundly at the depth and the width and the height of his love and my heart instinctively moves to adoration and devotion and worship and I'm caught up with my heavenly father that's what's going on in this passage and if you are facing a tough week this week that's a good verse to focus on That's a good verse to immerse yourself in. That's a good verse to hold on to this week. Adopted into his family. As I wrap things up this morning, the foundation of our relationship with him is his love. It is foundational, it is cardinal, it is primary to our relationship with him, his love. So what have we learned this morning as we bring things to an end? Number one, prayer is not predicated on performance. He is not interested in content devoid of authenticity, veracity, integrity. Number two, He's not simply your friend. He's not simply the creator of all things. He is our heavenly father. Number three, go into the week catching your breath, shaking your head in wonder and adoration because of his great love which he has lavished upon us. And at the risk of playing off a pretty bad pun, prayer is not navel-gazing. It is deep, profound adoration. It is not about repetition. It's about honesty. It's about pulling back the layers of the heart and mind and soul. And then, then, going deeper and deeper with our Heavenly Father. What is the secret of prayer? Let me leave you with one word and we'll pick it up next Sunday. Consistency. Going back to him 
and back to him and back to him and watching that whole relationship move to a whole new level because we leave this place this morning saying, Our Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Enable us, please, this week, when we carve out time to spend with you. Father, enable us to be able to be so open, so honest, so transparent that we say, Father, teach us how to pray. Take us to that whole new level where you will refresh us and renew us and enable us to consecrate heart, mind, and soul and give it over to you. Father, help us, please, in our prayers. Father, we know that your love for us is foundational in our life and our growth and maturity in our relationship with you depends on our willingness to pray. Father, bless us this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name.